everybody welcome to the voxology podcast mike and tim are coming at you we're so grateful that you would tune in and we're grateful to be a, a small part of your life speaking of small parts of life timothy i need a bachelor party update from uh, camping last week in the rain it was good it was a beautiful spot it was like this you rent the campsite and it comes with six acres whoa and it's on the river so we were like there's no one else around us anywhere around us you could be as loud as you wanted no one else was bothering you no nice. it was cold i did freeze in my truck it did rain on everything that we had out there so that was a thing but oh that's great overall, it was beautiful all right and so is the camp what is the campsite consist of exactly nothing there's two porta potties like uh, <laughs> but the, the guy does with compost you use it and then you scoop a little bit of sawdust in there and it keeps the smell down and uh composts it it was a, what i thought was pretty smart okay other than that there was a picnic bench i think nice and that's it and of good. of the different activities i mean during the rain what was what was happening well it mostly just rained at night the first oh, night. Oh, that's good. So that's good. everything got wet. You know, we were all pretty late the first night and then everyone woke up and had left everything out as one does. <laughs> and so that was a bit of a bummer. But um, when we didn't leave the campsite, so all the activities were kind of there. There was a boat that the guy, the owner, he sent a waiver basically saying like, if you do anything that kills you, it's your fault. Yep, yeah, that's fair. Great. That's fair. So my buddy and I got in the boat and paddled it upstream which was exercise and then rode it back down but then went to the other side and hiked up on top of the mountain and you can see the whole valley is very pretty nice yeah all right pretty, and then sleeping, pretty laid back sleeping in the car update uh both my hips feel like they're bruised <laughs> awesome so ladies and gentlemen there you have it a bachelor party out in the woods in the rain hope it was wonderful and um yeah, we won't ask any more questions about how all that went. Now, today, Some my friends left at the river. <laughs> what happens in the van down by the river stays <laughs> in the van down by the river. Um, if you're new to the podcast, I want to recommend a couple of things. Number one, would you go to voxologypodcast.com? You can check out new episodes. We have. Um, we have groupings of episodes together. So all everything that we've talked about when we, when we talk about um, women in ministry, LGBTQ issues, or the Unity series, or the Sermon on the Mount series, all of those things are grouped together. Uh, there's also, you can give us your email to get a newsletter and a survey. And uh, we're grateful for all of that. Secondly, if you would like, rate, subscribe, all of that matters to the algorithmic overlords that run our lives these days. And then lastly, I want to say a quick uh, thank you to Amy, Shelley, Drew, and Ryan for coming on the Patreon team. We are a 501c3, which means all gifts are tax deductible. And it also means we are crowdfunded and listener supported. And that's a big deal to us. Yeah, that means you can um, write us off in more ways than one. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, write us off, please. Um, and, uh, and anyway, if you go to Patreon um and type in voxology podcast you'll find us there or at a different platform called tithely tithe.ly all of this is on our website too if you'd like to find out more anyway we are going to start a new series of conversations we've uh, been spending time on unity we're gonna we, there's a rumor that we're gonna uh, do one more midweek q a and we're trying to get the author of the book to come and do a Q&A with us that uh, we've been looking at Centered Church and Mark Baker. And, um, and so we'll see if that pans out. But um, other than that, we want to have a series of conversations about what, what it is to be saved, what it is to experience salvation and, and the vocabulary of salvation that Paul uses um, in service to the very narrow gospel that we've often been told that Jesus came and died and rose again so that my individual soul would go to heaven because I'd accrued a sin debt that Jesus came to pay to satisfy God's justice. And in so doing, I give him my sin. He gives me his righteousness and I go it's to heaven ransom. when I die. That is, a, yes, that is a ransom theory or satisfaction uh, view of the atonement. Anyway, 
Um, and, and there are words that Paul uses in Ephesians 2, for instance, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, not by work so that no one can boast. There are four really important words in there, grace saved, faith, and works. And if you tell the traditional story um, that Jesus died to save us from our sins and the point of the cross was individual salvation to heaven, then those words take upon meanings that support that big salvation story. Um, or what we think is kind of a really small and narrow salvation story. Um, but if the salvation story turns out to be much larger than that or different than that, although it includes parts of it, then those words, faith and saved and grace and works, um, turn out to be, they, they turn out to have different resonance and different meaning. So what we want to do today is we want to start that series of conversations um, by just talking about the central aspect of the ministry of Jesus. All right. So we don't know what we're going to call this thing yet, but um, I, 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 the more I study and um, kind of delve into the kingdom of the kingdom message of Jesus, um, the more it reframes what Paul's doing, I think, to to more authentically reflect what Paul was doing rather than we the should, support. We call it um, Jeopardy. Wow. What mm. is faith? What is? Yes. What is salvation? Or okay. you're in Jeopardy and you need to be rescued. Our love's in Jeopardy, <laughs> baby. See Miller Band, anybody? Nope. Joker, smoker, midnight toker. <laughs> or that was the baseline that I played to get on the worship team at... Um, Simpson, because Lord, I lift your name on high. You can play it to that. Bum, nice. Bum, 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 bum. Oh, that's right. That's Lord, that's the I slower. Name. <laughs> yeah, that's the slower version of Lord, I lift your name on high. Uh, sorry for anyone uh, younger than forty who is missing <laughs> all all of these references. Uh, I also wanted to read one story before we dive into the new conversation. This uh, came in this week. Uh, hi, Tim. And this person graciously gave us permission to to read it. Um, and the subject line is a two for one deconstruction story. And we two for are one. two for one. Buy one, get hi, one free. Hi, Tim, Mike, and of course, the most esteemed Seth. I love that almost every single email we get these days has Seth not only listed, but listed in the most important position. In right. fact, I'm looking out my window and Seth should be arriving here within the next 20 minutes. So he will make an appearance today, ladies and gentlemen. He doesn't know it yet, but the minute he sees Tim Stafford on the computer, he's going to go crazy. Game on. Yes. Now, my own deconstruction, uh, she writes, is nothing spectacular. It's more in line with what you would have called discipleship. My parents are both followers of Jesus and have been a wonderful example to me. We moved around a lot, so we were constantly going to different churches. At one point, we moved from a charismatic church to a Southern Baptist church. One week, I was hearing, if you party and get drunk and get in a car accident and die, you might not go to heaven. Well. And the next week, I was hearing, just pray this prayer and you can do whatever you want. At least that's how I interpreted the teaching of my 13-year-old brain. Obviously, there are all sorts of problems with both, both of these, quote, teachings. But my point is, being introduced early on to all sorts of different understandings of what it meant to be Christian shaped me, challenged me, and encouraged me to dig deep early on. Question, questioning was ever threatening, and my parents demonstrated the same growing, changing, letting things go, adopting other things, etc. So that's the gist of my deconstruction story. Constantly examining, re-examining beliefs, held and through it all, uh, drawing closer to Jesus. Love that. This brings me to my husband's story, which is a different aspect of my own. We met in university. I was a student. My husband was both the pastor at my church and a student. When he graduated from Bible college, he decided not to continue to be a pastor. Parenthesis, long story involving trauma and pain inflicted by a mega church that our church tried to partner with. And he joined the military instead. Whoa. Jesus has always been, yes, Jesus has always been at the center of our relationship, or so I thought. He supported my time at seminary, encouraged me, prayed with me, helped me discern whether or not to work at a church, and was someone I spoke with at length about the different ideas and notions of God, Bible, worship, and, church, and, and what church was. He baptized each of our three boys when they decided they wanted to follow Jesus. He was always cynical about church, 
but kept me balanced when I tended towards legalism. He always gently showed me grace, and his wisdom and discernment were unnerving at times. We recently moved back to the U.S. after an um, overseas assignment. Uh, to give a fuller picture, we have moved 12 or 13 times in our 21-year marriage. We lived wow. in Spain, Japan, Italy, Malaysia, Hong Kong, and a few different states. In January, about six months after arrival in the U.S., our 14-year-old son says, I'm not sure I believe in God. Why well, should believe in something just because my parents believe it? This was not a new conversation in our house. His particular son has described himself as agnostic, atheist, a low-practicing Christian. When I would start to freak out a bit, my husband would always say, don't worry, he has the Holy Spirit in him, he'll be fine, they'll work it out. So I've always encouraged our kids to ask questions, which is wonderful. In this particular conversation, our son proceeded to talk about the beginnings of the universe, the singularity, etc. He was processing a Stephen Hawking book as a 14-year-old. My goodness. <laughs> he, uh, that, that he had been reading and it was all bit beyond me. So I said to my husband, do you have anything you could say that might help him? My husband then dropped what felt like a bomb to me. Not really, he said. I've been having some of the same questions lately. The time I didn't react, but since then we've had multiple conversations, and I won't lie, some of them I've responded well to and others I've reacted to out of fear. My husband is working on his third master's degree, and this current one has uh, an emphasis on ethics. This has brought to the forefront a lot of questions that I guess he's been mulling over for some time. Questions about divine violence, the morality of worshiping a God who an orthodox teaching, uses scapegoating, Jesus taking our punishment, is a good moral choice, etc. Some of the questions he has, I want to shout back, but there are answers for this. If you would just li read, listen, consider, etc. Other times I just say back, yeah, I have no idea, but I'm okay with that. Anyway, after several weeks of different conversations, he finally said to me, I'm not really questioning anymore. In my mind, the whole story of God is made up. And, and if, even if it were true, I have no interest in following the God who was presented in the Bible. He's a moral monster. Boom. If any of my friends or family members had said these things, I would have had so much patience and love for them. But coming from my husband, all I felt was pain and betrayal. How could he walk away from someone, God, who had, we had committed to centering our lives on? It felt to me as if his very identity was changing. It's been a few months now, and I'm working through what it means to love him through this and how to listen and be curious instead of react out of pain. I've let go of some of my dreams for our future. I felt fast to the truth that the God I believe in and worship is still a God of redemption who can take this whole mess and create something beautiful from it. My most hopeful moments, I'm filled with faith that this is not the end of my husband's story, that God is still working, that God is God of resurrection, and sometimes things need to die before they can be brought back to life. And she adds, and any other cliche that you can think of to add here. In my worst moments, I'm mad, I don't understand, and I'm a hot mess. Now, I know this is a long email, but she, this was the kind of the point. I suppose I'm spending so much time on this part of the story because of how it is entwined with mine. The pain and grief I'm in isn't because of the beliefs I've let go of. It's the way I'm trying to walk with my husband through his loss of faith. It sucks. It really does. I hate it. I've probably composed a dozen or so emails to you guys over the last few years, but I've never sent them. This one, however, well, I thought maybe someone could receive comfort from knowing that there are others who share their experience of walking with someone who is deconstructing, even to the point of deconversion. There's absolutely nothing sexy about crying so hard that snot bubbles are running down your face, not even a little bit. All this is to say, thank you for listening, for the work that you do, the conversations you hold, and the posture you sit in. I, for one, am truly grateful. And that one, well, I mean, we're just always so freaking honored that people share their stories with us and and often do so in a way that that is for the wider audience of people who kind of tune in and so i just wanted to say thank you to this woman for sharing her story in all of its complexity yeah, it's been interesting to see how much these it's been if anything an interesting experience to see how much sharing our stories with each other has like how constructive it's been for other people if that yeah. makes sense like yeah absolutely there's a lot of great aspects to hearing everybody's stories i learn from them um but i think that that alone like just the last thing that she says like that this is 
hopefully encouraging for some people to say, Hey, you're not the only person that's sitting and holding this space, I think is pretty powerful. Oh my goodness. Yes. And, 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 you know, we often talk about deconstruction, but we, we've never, I don't think, or if we have, it's just been in passing, talked about what it's like to be with somebody who is going through that. Right. That was the part of the email that, that really grabbed a hold of my attention. The idea that, you know, that for her, deconstruction was just a form of discipleship. But for her husband, deconstruction has been to deconversion, and it's been very fearful and traumatic for her to watch this. And, um, you know, there are no cliches that sort of make this okay. You listed a bunch. And I think in some cases, those cliches can be true. I've seen them in my own life. But you said something I, I think that is so unbelievably important. And it's what my daughter reflects back to me when I ask her about her faith journey as uh, being my daughter, um, somebody who's wandered a bit myself. Um, and she uses the word permission. Um, I asked her about, you know, the other day, just uh, what, what, what does she think God's doing? If God is real, yeah. what do you think God's doing in her life? Which again is a cliche parent question. But she was really articulate about it, and which is not surprising if you know my daughter. Um, and she talked about how great it has been to be surrounded by people who give her permission to say out loud the things that the church often prohibits us from saying, that many of us actually do think. And so for this woman to be so honest about, you know, not reacting to her son, yeah. But then hearing this from her husband and the here come the snot bubbles, I just have so much respect, <coughs> excuse me, for the honesty and pain yeah. of that journey. And um, I don't know what that's like. I can't imagine. Uh, all I know is that in my, with my own children, taking the long view, yeah. the longest view, the 80-year view. Yeah. <laughs> And not reacting to the moment is um, it's been a really helpful discipline. Not that I do that in any way, shape, well, or form. It's so perfectly. hard to see outside of your little, your small window, right? Like, how did she say she felt pain and betrayal? Yep. yep. And I'm sure he probably feels not towards her, but towards God, a ton of pain and betrayal. And right. so it's it's so important to hold space in a long term setting for that pain and betrayal to be real and to be accessed and to you know to give time and space to kind of sort through what that is yep regardless of where it lands right and that's the hard part yeah is being steadfast and being with someone committed to them right and committed to be with them regardless of where it lands it is such a really interesting because we're and maybe it's our generation again coming from the purity uh, purity culture and promise rings and that stuff. But I remember so often um, the verse about being unequally yoked yeah. being used. And the, I can remember so clearly the um, metaphor that was used was Arnold Schwarzenegger standing on a table and even him being, you know, at the time he was still the strongest man on the planet reaching down that even like a junior high girl, if she pulled on his hand hard enough from the, uneven oh, yes. level she could pull him down from the table so it's not it doesn't matter how <laughs> strong you are yeah um the person who's the unequaled yoke or whatever is, has the the leverage to pull you off of your yeah. whatever and that was how we went into relationships was like hey make sure that but there's no there's no definition or rhyme or reason as to what that really meant within totally. that conversation at all yeah. we were just terrified of not having someone who shared the exact same understandings right understands that I no longer hold right. about anything. Right. So it's it's such a, I, I feel like that was just another way, at least our generation, or at least just I, I will just speak for myself, was set up for a yeah. really hard uh, walk with another person relationally within the complexity of faith. Yeah. Yep. So I think that's a great point, Tim. Um, how that text has been used 
and um, the pressure, you know, it, we it, it, that it puts on us. Man, that's so good. I haven't thought about that verse in a long time, at least in that context. And uh, yeah, how in the world do 18 or 21 or 25-year-olds know what that even means? Or 45 or 50. <laughs> the, uh, there was an interesting, you know, we're having a side conversation, um, Mike and I and our other friend, and he brought up something yesterday about um, something he was reading about the emotional response to faith like yeah. and yep. how we how we try to detach that so much and how that may be part of god's design is that that's a facet of it but we've been so trained away or not trained away we've been i don't know it's been so misused that we mm. compartmentalize everything about how we are as humans with who we are as you know spiritual entities and i yes. feel like a lot of this stuff happens with that too where you're just like you're not allowed to you're not allowed to look at the minutia or the, you know, whatever the large version of that is. Yeah. Mac- Macronutia. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like wrestling with Stephen Hawking, like the dude was brilliant and, and opened up and unlocked so many genius things. But I remember not being encouraged to wrestle with that stuff. And then it becomes science versus faith again. Right. And, and the inevitable conclusion of that is always walking away with the violent stuff i'm so interested i want to petition you (laughs) michael erie to do a series someday on i started rereading um the unseen realm the heiser book and just the you know this other spiritual forces that are at play yeah because that has to be a piece of this puzzle but we don't talk about it and so then it's just like well either god is morally uneven and violent and terrible (laughs) and it's everything's there or we just say we don't understand let's just let it go yeah but if there are these other entities yeah exactly so i feel like that's part of this conversation is like there is so much more at play but we don't that is just not explored right yep good stuff tim um man yes that those are those are rabbit trails that turn out to be super highways you know as, as <laughs> yeah. we start pulling those threads um so thank you just more than anything thank you for sharing that with us and i think people can relate to not Definitely. just the deconstruction story but when that happens to people they love and they see them because the only the only categories we've been given are saved unsaved and backsliding yeah and so it's like shoots and ladders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's really no other category. And so, you know, and then, and then, you know, if, if we thought they were saved, but they weren't saved and they were never saved and just we all this look weird, at, we should look at that salvific language and see yes. what those words mean. You know what, Timothy, that's a great <laughs> idea for a conversation. So, so we want to tell a bigger story, um, that has congruence with things we've talked about in the last couple of years, but it takes it a slightly different way and, and helps us kind of see different aspects of what salvation turns out to be, what faith is, what grace is, what works are. So today we're going to start with the, the core message of Jesus of Nazareth, um, which is what, Timothy, this is, this is totally off the cuff. Timothy is not prepared He's got a purple sweatshirt on with a light blue hat, um, bad allergies, and spent last weekend in the woods. It's true. Living Just in a his mess. truck down by the river. Got a sunburned nose. Mm. Oh. Come on. Come um, on, Timothy. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Yes! Boom! <laughs> All these years together. See? <laughs> Um, that is exactly right. So, so one of the most important things to get central in the church conversation that we've had, the Sermon on the Mount conversation we've had, and all of these conversations has been the central message of Jesus was the announcement that the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is near. So repent um, and reconsider the, the entire mode of life you've entered into previously in light of the fact that the kingdom is now nearby. 
And so I want to talk about this sentence for this episode because it turns out to be a sentence that encompasses the whole story of the Bible. And um, so we have we first have to talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of God in uh, Mark and Luke and the kingdom of heaven in Matthew and even John's phrase, eternal life, all are pointing to the same reality. So I'm going to use the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, to talk about this phrase, the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Now, that uh, kingdom of heaven um, stands for a realm of authority, just like the kingdom of God does. What does synop- synoptic mean? It's just Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They, they have commonalities. All right. So they're called the synoptics. And there's, I don't remember what the word synoptic means, but it's the idea that they're sharing information. And then John is always considered this other thing. (laughs) And if you read all four of them, you'll be like, yep, that's exactly it. it." But um, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven turn out to be the same thing. We get confused whenever we hear the word heaven because we think heaven is some sort of reality where, where God lives up there and we join him when we die. Totally. Um, and that is not what the kingdom of heaven means. The kingdom of heaven, it, like if I said, hey guys, the White House today said X. Now, the White House literally did not talk. The White House is the symbol of the authority of the executive branch of our government. Right. So the summary of, of that, that the metaphor of that is the White House. So if I just said the White House said X, then I'm speaking on behalf of the president or the executive branch, correct? Yep. Um, when we say kingdom of heaven, it's the same use of a, uh, of, a, of a reality that stands for an authority behind it. This is the kingdom of heaven is the kingship of God. It's just a, a different way of saying that so you don't invoke the word God. And Matthew, as, as somebody who was Jewish and Jewish listeners, you know, would often substitute heaven for God in other places as well. So it's the same reality, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Now, um, we have to ask the question, what is that? Uh, we don't live by monarchs today. Kingdoms and queendoms aren't very common things unless you've watched Game of Thrones um, or whatever, right? I mean, this is just not a, a reality in which we live. And so we want to talk about what the kingdom of God turns out to be. Now, the idea um, of the kingdom of God, we first get a glimpse of kingdom language, uh, shockingly, in Genesis 1 and 2, when we meet the creator God who brings some some sort of artistic design out of disorder hmm. and speaks has such power they're speaking into a void and the and the void is reshaped and then filled according to the word of this cosmic agent and then in chapter two we read about the 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 idea that this space is going to be a temple for this cosmic agent and that in the center of that temple is going to be a garden and like other ancient Near Eastern temples um, that, that put images and likenesses at the center of the temple to remind people of the sovereignty of the God over that temple, um, God creates human beings and places them as images and likenesses in his cosmic temple to work and to take care of this garden and to expand its borders throughout the rest of the world. So, so image and likeness are royal words. If uh, an image back in the day just meant a god who manifested God, that god self through the king, and then the king would make images of the king uh, to represent the authority of the god. So the, the train of thought was like, well, the god is embodied in the king, and so an image of the king was an image of the god. Right. Make sense? And it was literally an image, a statue. So when that word is used here, the idea is that we too are in a a cosmic temple and we serve a priestly and royal function. And that function is known as imaging or likenessing this invisible God. So that when we exercise authority or when we are gazed upon, we see what it is uh, that this God is like in the same way that you would look at a statue and understand things about the God. Makes sense so far? <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? What was that movie with Michael Keaton? 
where he cloned himself oh multiplicity. no mr was it mr mom no it was multiplicity oh. and then one of his copies so he starts cloning himself and then his clones start doing all of his work for him and then one of his clones clones himself oh no to help do the work but then that clone is a little dumber than the other clone and michael keaton's like you know how when you make a copy of a copy it's never quite as bright as the original is that what our problem is because we're just copies of copies of the original image Ooh, timothy your brain particularly <laughs> when it comes to movies and literature works in very mysterious ways yeah even to so me. yeah so yes i yeah absolutely but but the but the idea is and and there were other god stories in the ancient near east that told that 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 um had the human beings existing as slaves for the gods yeah. to literally do their work but in this instance the invitation was for royal participants to um, co-create and participate in Yahweh's kingship. And so imaging was a, a royal idea. So the, so in Genesis 1, we just get a being of unspeakable power and intelligence. In Genesis 2, we get a king who's creating images in a temple. So that's yeah. the first image of kingship. You, you then go on, and the first time Yahweh is, is, is called king explicitly is when Yahweh forms a people out of this man Abram and uh, they're enslaved for 400 years to the Egyptians and to a king Pharaoh. God wages war against that Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and rescues his people through the Red Sea and at the other side of the Red Sea in Exodus 15 they sing a song, a victory song about God hurling the, the chariots and horses into the sea and then they pronounce that our God reigns, right? The idea that Yahweh is king. And the, the kingship of Yahweh gets fleshed out all over the place, most specifically when uh, the people ask for a ruler, just like all the other earthly kingdoms have a visible ruler. And, um, and Samuel looks um, upon the Israel's request for king and says, in so doing, you are rejecting God as your king. And then you have a bunch of prophetic literature where Yahweh is on his throne in Daniel or Ezekiel and Isaiah, other places where Yahweh is ruling from his throne. So, so the conception of Yahweh as king, even in the treaties, like Deuteronomy is based around or carries the same form of a, a way a, a king would, would, would um, agree to a covenantal treaty with a vassal nation. And so all of this is dripping with God as king sorts of language. But, um, and, and, and then in the, the poets and the prophets, there, are, um, there is the hope as the nation is sent into exile and kicked out of the land, the northern kingdom kind of disappears for others. Some of the southern kingdom comes back. They try to rebuild the temple. Even, the, even though they have 100 years of independence through the Macca, Maccabean revolt and Hasmonean dynasty, um, they get subjugated again, this time by Rome. And, um, you know, they live in the land, but they're not sovereign. Isn't it crazy to think that 100 years, so more than a generation, wrestling with... It's always interesting to put flesh and blood on that kind of stuff because... When we think about, I'm just thinking about the emails today and the other ones where we wrestle with the complexity of our immediate moment. Yeah. And yep. to think about what was it wrestling within that 100 year moment or 40 years in the desert moment or whatever. Yep. Like, yep. It's, it's, it's often that we don't take the full flesh and blood of those folks from those time periods as part of this story into the whole thing when we're in the one moment that we're falling apart. No, exactly right. Sorry, side note. Yeah. I'm always trying to put flesh and blood back on these stories so they're not just like these, the felt board again. Yes, yes. The flannel graph. Yes. Um, and again, another reference for those of you over 40. Um, we we'll do our best. We should sell Voxology flannel graphs. <laughs> I'll just take some Voxology flannel. That's what <laughs> I'm wanting, buddy. Um, so so it, it was, the idea was that God of course, in theory, was king over everything, right? The, the earth is the Lord's, or the, the, the uh, oh, how do they say that? 
everything is the Lord's and the earth is his footstool, I think. Yeah. It's one of the ways the psalmist would say that. That God was king, but his kingship wasn't fully manifested on the earth. Other wills were being done. Other expressions of sovereignty existed. And, um, and so there was this hope, this prophetic and poetic hope that the prophets would describe. Not just that Yahweh would come back but that Yahweh would come back as king over Israel and he would begin to put the world right. Right? So like Isaiah 52 is a great example of this. The idea is that people are on the ramparts of a city and that city is surrounded and, um, and, and they're watching for, for news of their rescue. There's nothing they can do. They're overwhelmed. They're barely holding on and they're waiting to hear about whether or not they'll be rescued. And um, in Isaiah 52, the author writes, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, and who say to Zion, Jerusalem, representing all of Israel, your God is king. Listen, your watchmen, lift up their voices, even in the midst of your enemy, lift up your voices together, shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. And the idea is that they are waiting, the good news, they're waiting for God to return as king. Remember, the Old Testament does not end with the question, how are we going to get all these people into heaven? How are we going to save all these people because they've sinned? The question the Old Testament ends with is, when will God come back to Israel as king? Yeah. All right? Now, that is a 10-minute jet tour of about a zillion texts we could have been looking at. <laughs> this theme gets developed and anticipated and misunderstood all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Um, you see, and, and there, the, the prophetic line you know, you see in Genesis about, you know, uh, the king coming through Judah and then in, in first and second Samuel, now the king's going to come through the line of David and Psalm chapter two, the king is going to have some sort of father son relationship with Yahweh. I mean, it's just, you get this developed over and over and over and over again, but it carries within it the, the seeds of this tension. Yeah. God is king and God is becoming king. When now will God yet. become king again? Yes, exactly. That's the seeds of now and not yet. So all of that is in the background when Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of God. Okay? The kingdom, the Greek word, and its Hebrew counterpart ha have three different interrelated parts of meaning. All right? A kingdom consists of a king who forms a community who then live under the king's reign and rule. So in Genesis, the king creates a community, right? The first, not the first humans, but the first like God breathed the image bearing humans. Yeah. Um, they're commanded to fill the earth to create more of them. And, um, and so he, he, as king forms a community and then invites them to live under his rule. Now, the invitation to live under his rule was represented by the fruit of one particular tree. Right. Right? So in a garden full of yes, here's one no. And that's what it meant to live under his rule. When they rejected his rule, they took upon themselves rulership. They use their imaging now not to image Yahweh, but to image something within creation. We see this in, in Genesis 12. After um, the Tower of Babel story and the flood, the idea that, the that, that, that humans are imaging the worst parts of themselves and creation and they've totally, totally missed the out on the human vocation um, of image bearing. God calls Abram and Sarai and says to them, you will be a great nation and I will be, in essence, your king. So again, we have those three components, a king creating a community, forming um, a people who live under the good reign. And that reign was Torah. That was the invitation to live under Torah. And Torah was seen as what it meant to be God's community 
in the grace, in the previous grace of the Exodus. They were already rescued. They were already chosen. Now live into that identity as God's chosen people and Torah is how you do it. Well, it's not surprising when Jesus of Nazareth shows up in the world that he does the very same thing his father had been doing, right? First thing he does um, in Matthew chapter 4 is he preaches this idea that the kingdom of heaven is drawn near, and then he begins to gather a community. And I mean, instantly he calls fishermen, he calls two sets of fishermen, he gathers crowds and disciples, and the invitation to follow me is an invitation to live under his rulership, his governance. Um, So you see that dynamic. So when you read kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, those the interplay between a king a community and the reigning god of uh or reigning of the king over that community that's what's being talked about when jesus says it to israel it has that whole old testament backstory to it so what he's saying in so many words is that god is returning to israel as king um, that's why they do the Hosanna triumphal entry thing. Right. They're asking him to be a certain kind of king. Yeah. Uh, they understood Jesus often in kingly terms and were gravely disappointed when, yeah. when his kingship consisted of, you know, humility and service and self-sacrificial love and Which so is a lot on. how we sound these days. Absolutely. Absolutely. So are you saying it's important to, to know the Old Testament when trying to understand Jesus? You are a beautiful man. <laughs> As it turns out. So so if you're in the synagogue and you're hearing the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Okay, the kingdom of God is that God is coming back as king yeah. to Israel and, and Lord of the whole world. All right? So that's when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand or has come near. So let, that's the kingdom of God part. Let's talk about the come near part. All right, the come near part, that word near is a spatial term. It's like my microphone is close by. It's not not time-wise like, hey, spring break is near. It's spatially. It's right next to you because the kingdom of heaven is Jesus and Jesus is the kingdom of heaven with clothes on. <laughs> He's the king who gathers a community and to live in relationship with Jesus to experience the goodness of his reign and rule. And so that, that's the picture we get. And the invitation to do that was embodied and embedded in the invitation to follow me. Makes sense so far? Yeah. So you would have had this whole Old Testament backstory, and then you would have just been observing Jesus. Why does he select 12 official apostles? Well, he's, he's renewing Israel with himself at the center. Right? All of this was like prerogative, kingly prerogative. So you have Jesus um, in his statement, the kingdom of God is at hand, saying that the, the, the long-awaited reclamation project of God over Israel and all the world is now close to you. It is happening right now. And as a result, repent just means reconfigure your mode of life your way of living in light of the fact that the kingship of god is now available to you directly without mediation apart from jesus it's not through temple pre-sacrifice now it's available to you through jesus and that's why it's significant that jesus just roams around forgiving people like to get forgiven you had to go offer a sacrifice at the temple and, and receive forgiveness by a priest Jesus is just sort of like, hey, I'm a Galilean peasant and I forgive you. And that's why the Pharisees have so much issues is that Jesus is not just doing this royal thing, but he's doing this priestly thing too. Yeah. And there were some, um, some Jews of the day who thought there would be two messiahs, one who was priestly and one who was militaristic. Right. And instead of two messiahs, we get one messiah twice. Um, right. This Jesus. Now, I know this is a whole heck of a lot, but I hope it's not super like new uh, because it's stuff we've talked about before. Yeah. Jesus then, of course, he, um, he gathers a community, invites them to live under his reign, and he goes to Jerusalem as king. Uh, that's what the whole Ho- Hoshana thing was and the palm branches. But comes as king and a king who will suffer. That's the whole misunderstanding of the disciples. His kingship, 
he comes into his full kingship on the cross that's the thing that's so shocking that he wins by losing he gains victory through suffering he comes into his glory on the cross and god vindicates that way of the kingdom of heaven being at hand through raising jesus by the dead right and so jesus then spends 50 days with his disciples commissioning them preparing them to go bring the gospel to the nations and what we have very early then is the coming of the spirit which was a sure sign of the end of the age and the formation of a group of, of disciples of jesus who now are indwelt by the spirit of jesus and given his power to form his kind of character as a community it'd be nice to have notes on those 50 days <laughs> i bet there were some venn diagrams yeah you know a lot of drawing uh, in the sand yeah oh my goodness that'd be pretty cool well it, what's fascinating is even after the 50 days in matthew 28 the disciples gather and it says there were many up on the mountainside and some doubted yeah <laughs> and i just love that that was something they had to get down there um <laughs> <laughs> and just in case because obviously in the wrong hands the idea of god coming back to put things right can sound really really fearful yeah uh, and really awful um and what matthew makes sure to do at least in his gospel is to tell us and show us exactly what it means when the king comes back yeah it's so and, interesting because you think about the art i was just listening to it might be i don't i don't know but our need for the strong man right and so the yeah, yep. the strong man that comes in whether it's trump or putin who comes in with really strong language bullies people around to make our name great again basically right and how much we want that from jesus how much we want this you know buff guy on the horse to come in rough people up and make our name great again and right. say and prove us right like look we said we were chosen we said we were right we said we were victorious oh here he is and he's gonna mess you up to show you yeah and then he doesn't but we still do that we still tribalize under a strong man absolutely it's such a fascinating human thing compulsion yeah i mean that's why it's why we love celebrity preachers totally absolutely it's the same you dynamic just said else, like a two minutes ago that made me think that exact same thing too that maybe it was the yeah there's something about that loud strong arrogant voice from the pulpit that you know makes us feel safe also they yep. take you under your wing under their wing and they tell you what to believe and they do the work for you um, all of it is so counter to the message that Jesus brought and the participation, the role that we play in it. It's wild. Yep. And the more exclusive and exclusionary that voice is, the more safety we feel within it. Absolutely. As long as you're on the right side of the line. Yeah. Yeah. Boundaries on the right side of the bounded line. Yes. Look at you go. Um, so what's fascinating is that Jesus then at the end of matthew 4 and i'd read this whole chapter literally i mean this is like what the kingdom coming looks like it looks like jesus matthew says jesus went and proclaimed and taught the kingdom and he healed people with diseases and cast out demons and so literally over the next five chapters the first three are the sermon on the mount which we've covered in depth about loving your enemies and blessing those who persecute you um and then the next two chapters Gen genesis not genesis matthew 8 and 9 are healing stories just a bunch of healing stories and they are that that five chapters which five is always a significant number uh but again they didn't write in chapters so it's a anyway um it's fascinating though <laughs> divinely significant well perhaps uh it's fascinating that when the kingdom comes it comes through the teaching of jesus and we get a glimpse of that in the sermon on the mount and it yeah. comes through the healing of jesus and the setting free from people of bondage and so it turns out to be great news why because he's not just another kingdom builder he's not just another king he's not just another big strong personality jesus is coming with all the prerogatives and power of deity and yet he sets all of that aside to give his life as a ransom for many and so here's some big implications timothy at least two uh, for our purposes this is all just foundation setting up because if you tell the story hey 
um, Jesus died for your sins and because you accrued a sin debt and God is holy um, and so he cannot just let us in and he is just and his justice must be satisfied and here's Jesus. And I'm not saying the Bible doesn't use some of that language, it totally does. But when you take, when you view that as the only story or the biggest story or the biggest part of the story, then you get into Paul and you're like, oh, well, okay, so faith saved grace and works must mean salvation in regards to that thin story. We want to say, no, no, the story is the, the, the story is the story of, of the return of the king, right? That's why the Hobbit was so profound <laughs> yeah. um, and Lord of the Rings was so profound because it was exactly in you know an, an entirely different setting the image of a king who was coming back into power over people but doing so from a place of kindness goodness and graciousness in defiance of a counter kingdom of great evil right that's the biblical story and it, it goes from creation to new creation it spans every aspect and genre of the bible it's the story the bible is telling um, is the kingship of God drawing near. Now, there are two parts of this that, that are super important. Number one, notice the direction. The kingship of God is coming to us. So much of the spirituality I was taught um, explicitly and implicitly was that, that God's goal is to get us out of here into heaven. So he was going to do that through the rapture. Uh, he was going to come and rescue the souls of the people who were faithful to him in the midst of persecution. But the direction was us into heaven. And it wasn't until, man, early 2000s. And I heard, I heard Rob Bell um, say one time, like, no, God is bringing heaven here. And I'd never, I was like, yeah, that's just a cute turn of phrase. But um, as it turned out, he was dead on that that's literally the direction like in genesis 1 and 2 god is dwelling among his people um on uh in creation and then there's this break of fellowship but god still is pursuing people so there so there's god showing up in random places there's god um dwelling in a tabernacle then a temple and then that's not close enough and then god tabernacles in the form of jesus to walk around the human community and then that's not close enough then god says um it's for your good jesus says that i go away and god sends the holy spirit to dwell in us and then the whole bible ends with with a new heaven and a new earth and a heavenly city coming down out of heaven to dwell on the earth with renewed people and renewed bodies um, living in new creation and that you and i are invited to anticipate and foretaste an image that new creation now in the midst of the old creation that is the direction of the biblical story right and we've yeah. made this point lots of times the biblical story is about heaven and earth it's not about heaven and hell now there is something and we'll talk about this in this series if we're saved to something we are saved from something and we'll talk about what that something is that we're saved from but the but the point of the biblical story notice the direction it is not an escapist theology it is an embodied theology yeah. Our bodies matter and the redemption of our bodies ma uh, matter. This is um, very different from, from us trying to escape. Our body is a shell that houses our immortal soul. This is not the story the Bible is telling. The Bible is telling the story of how embodied people get redeemed and, be, and are brought themselves in their bodies into a new creation. Yeah. So it's a beautiful, fantastic, I mean, world-spanning and mind-blowing story. And when you tell that story, faith and works and saved and grace are understood differently. Yeah. Um, so that's the first implication. Notice the direction. The second implication is that the kingdom of God is a social and political reality. The invitation of Jesus um, is not to have some private religious moment in my heart where I pray a prayer and invite Jesus into my heart. I don't even know what that means. I used to use that language because that was the language given to me, but now I think it's just a load of hooey. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the reality of the kingship of Jesus is a, a body politic. It is a social reality. It is... The, it is um, 
it is something that you that yes your heart as you know understood in american terms as your emotions plays a part in absolutely but like we have a, a worship song that we sing that's uh that has the line you know or it's called king of my heart literally yeah. that's what the song is and i have no i can't i i can kind of not really sing the song anymore because i don't know <laughs> what that means yeah if jesus were king of my heart then then it would show itself in the enacted loyalty in the way i treat other people right yeah. um there is no i mean this there's just nothing about praying a prayer and having nothing to do with jesus i mean there's just nothing like that you're either allied to the to the king's program and to the king or you're not there's no like internal warm fuzzy that we're supposed to be out there tracking uh to see if we get from our religious rituals and so the the first thing is that this is not about souls escaping bodies going into heaven but the second thing is this is about a public reality and a social uh, a social and political and economic community that is reconfigured around the upside down kingdom of god values demonstrated by jesus of nazareth and so <laughs> the the only response to that is repent and it's like, well, recon like I love how Dallas Willard says it. D. Willie, in your words. D. Willie. Reconsider your life because of the facts now on the ground. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, not the facts on the ground are the things that are really happening, the reality that's all around you. It's not the reality in church. It's not the reality in your spiritual life or your quiet time or your inner devotions. It's like, no, this is something God is doing publicly in the world. And it's through people. And so, of course, our individual affections and our dispositions. But we've made that the point of the salvation right. story. When our embodied life and enacted loyalty to others is the point of the biblical story. Yeah. And that was, uh, who was it? Stephen being martyred. And he yes. was talking about, um, gosh, oikos what kind of economy he was channeling god like what kind of economy are you going to build for me and it was yeah. how you we will co how we not how we exist with each other yeah with what you just said yeah sorry no absolutely i have words absolutely. popping in my brain from different places but i remember that being a thing like what what is the economy that you're going to build and it's not just obviously a financial economy but what kind of yes economic construct of cohabitation within what you already have heard are you going right. to build well and that's what torah was yeah it was the economic practices the political practices the the social practices the justice practices of a community with yahweh as its king yeah and you still can ask that same question absolutely so of course there are political practices and economic practices and social practices that enact the the lordship and kingship of of jesus yeah and so uh, far more, um, you know, when the New Testament is, is speaking, Paul and, you know, Peter and others to the church, the church is in view, the social, corporate, political reality, that community is in view. It's not a bunch of individuals who have quiet times. And I, I have nothing against quiet times, but my salvation was almost exclusively construed totally. in inner private terms. And how can I be sure of my salvation? Right. right. Well, in the same way, I'm sure about my marriage. I, I, it affects my entire life. I know yeah. that I'm married. I don't sit in a room and wonder if I'm married today. Right. Right. I have a ring. Sure. But that's not the justifier. The justifier is that over the course of 21 years, I have reoriented sometimes well and sometimes poorly my life around the life of another. Yeah, no, that's a good example. The economy that you build in your house yes, as a married structure has nothing. It's not embodied by you just in the morning quietly telling yourself, I am I'm a married. husband. Yeah, yeah, I'm married. I'm married. Totally. I love but my it's wife. the economy that you build with her there. Yes. And with those that are in there with you. Right. A family isn't a group of individual people who just have private moments thinking affectionately about one another. <laughs> I am a son. Right, right. The family is the dynamic where those um, individual identities begin to play out. 
Totally. Right? It's that social reality. So the kingdom is just like that. It's a social reality. Yes, there are inner parts, but those are not the focus. That's why so often the questions of, hey, I, I'm not sure about my salvation. Am I supposed to feel a certain way? I haven't had this experience. Right? There's, they're, they're symptoms of a very misguided telling of the biblical story. Well, we, yeah. How many times did you have that conversation in youth group where, you know, someone, quote, you know, in quotes, falls away? Right. It's like, well... You know, he prayed the prayer, so right at the end, it doesn't really matter. Like he's his his salvation was set when he prayed that prayer. So, yep. I don't. The whole it's just the whole schematic was wonky. Yes, wonk. So, so this is just the intro to the larger story, and and I know some of this is review. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to frame where we go next from this place yeah that it's the kingdom story that jesus is telling and that paul is telling yeah the, the problem is, is encouraging for me because it shows the thread through everything you love you love threads well the interconnectedness of everything is very encouraging yep. that all these series don't stand alone and we have to try to reconcile right these different you know it, that everything fits together and that there is there is a story or a theme or a journey through all these things that make sense and they daisy chain each other. Yes. Good use of the word daisy chain. Thank you. So, um, without further objection, or unless we get, you know, incredible questions that require more clarification, we will jump uh, off on the word saved. Um, dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And um, We'll just try to reconfigure the grammar of the gospel. Now, hold on. Seth theory is just getting off the bus. Hold on, Tim. Play some music or something. Give us some Jeopardy music or something. Please. All right, here you go. Do you want to say hi to Tim Stafford? Hi, Tim. Hey, Seth. Hi. Hey, what's big about today? Huh? You, why did you get home early? Because what's next week? Do you remember? Mr. Evans. Mr. Evans is coming to visit. Yeah, but but what, do you go to school next week? Why? It's spring break. It's spring break, guys. Spring break. So the Friday before spring break is only a half day. Yeah, of course. Why not? Yeah, so t- t- tell us about your day, man. What did you do today at school? I did... Um was you did lunch totally that's a that's a good place to start were there animals today animals yeah were there animals? Kind of animals yeah what kind of animal talk talk to people buddy I, a, goat. a goat a goat what else uh, uh practice practice for what chick-fil-a chick-fil-a practice <laughs> yeah like I don't think that chickens? happened at school. You, hey, you do practice a lot at Chick-fil-A, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I like Tim Stafford. I, I know, I like Tim Stafford too. Do you want to tell anything to the Voxology podcast? Yeah. All right, what do you want to say, son? Tim, hey, Tim, is like, hey, he loves that he has his own, like, audio cue. Yeah. That's Good job, buddy. Oh man. All right. So ladies and gentlemen, that that's how we end this. That's right. Dog on it. Sweet Seth. So um as always, email us your questions, thoughts, anything you want to talk more about. We're so open to that. But um I'm kind of excited about some of the conversations we're gonna get into. This will probably take us four or five episodes we do have a couple interviews coming up so excited for that too timothy any last thoughts nope wow wow yeah Uh, seth has this great saying and he combined what a kitty cat says with a cow and he and he calls it (laughs) muow so instead of wow it's muow yeah i like it and the other the other combo he does that i i just think is the greatest thing is instead of yesterday, it's yes to go. So instead of yes yesterday or ago, it's yes to go. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's perfect. It's like oh, okay, that's what that Once is. Once upon a time, or yes to yes go. Yes to go. 
Exactly. Yes. Why not? I mean, there are contractions. Yep. Why not? Like Why not it. just reform some words? Anyway, brothers and sisters, hope this is a bit helpful. Um, give us your feedback if you would. We are honored to receive it and always learn from it. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give us peace in peace. Russia, Ukraine, all around us to our weather. Tim, it yeah. is 64 degrees right now. And it's, we're getting three inches of snow tonight, Tim. In Nashville, it's wild. that's it's awful. A wild ride. Yeah. So Jesus, take the wheel on that. Terry Underwood. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us. You can do so at patreon.com backslash voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on Instagram at voxology podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for walking the long road with us.